let's not make a big deal out of this. It's just an AA meeting. <laughs> I was smiling because I was hoping I wouldn't have to wear this because the bag that was missing had this in it. Um, I'm glad to be sober and free on the streets in Eureka, Arkansas. And uh, I've enjoyed everybody that's talked so far. Uh, I really liked Peggy last night. I, uh, it kind of scared me. I identified with her. I thought, this, I thought this woman's a sick woman. I thought, ooh, that means I'm a sick man. <clears throat> and uh, Beverly, I always enjoy listening to Beverly. She talks about the big book. And anytime somebody talks about the big book, they've got my attention. And uh, Bo, I fell in love with what Al had done for Bo a couple years ago down in Texas. And uh, I never thought I would say when it comes to the steps, Bo knows. <laughs> but uh, I'm just really grateful to be here. And uh, my name's Joe Annis Hansel, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I say recovered because it stirs up a lot of controversy. And because it's true, and it's what my big book says, and uh, I didn't know a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what sobriety was about. I didn't even think I was an alcoholic when I came to AA, and my sponsor said, you're going to hear a lot of things in AA that don't have anything to do with AA, that don't have anything to do with staying sober. He said, but if you want to know the truth about AA and sobriety, read the big book. Of course, I thought he was ignorant, and I didn't read it, but when I started to read it, I opened the page to the big book, the first few pages, the title page, of, and the big book says, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Didn't say they were recovering for the rest of their lives. I heard that a lot in AA. It kind of confused me. Opened it up a little bit farther to the forward of the first edition, and it says, uh, there's a printing in 1939. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Hey, I didn't write it. I'm just reporting what I've read. And if you're still recovering, maybe your book reads different than mine. What does yours say? Maybe mine's a misprint. I don't know. But I can only go by what this book tells me. And it's the only thing that has worked for me since October the 5th, 1978. And I never had any idea I was ever going to stay sober that long. I like bringing this book to AA meetings because we've got a lot of groups out there today. We've got Debtors Anonymous, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, uh, Prostitutes Anonymous. It was in Reno a few weeks ago and I saw it on TV. Uh, <laughs> My wife's here, man. Give me a break. I heard one of their slogans is, just don't take the first buck. <laughs> and then I heard something the other day, they have a sex anonymous. I'd like to hear one of those stories, wouldn't you? <laughs> Good to hear a guy get up there and say, my name's Cotton, I'm a binge lover. <laughs> or my, my name's Mike, I'm a periodic lover. Go for weeks on end without making love, and all of a sudden make love three times in one night. End up in Cleveland. Didn't know how I got there. <laughs> Whoa, wow. <laughs> now, this is AA, and uh, 
when I came to A, it appeared that I had all of those problems, and I come to find out through reading this book that my problem is alcoholism. And sometimes, because of people like me that have self-centered fear, my problems seem to be something other than what they really are. I, uh, <laughs> I can't help it. I insist on enjoying myself. I cried too many years. I don't know about you. I, I'm not too concerned with the quality of the air. I'm not one of those people. I, uh, it's funny. We come to A, we've raped people, and we've been raped. We've stolen from people we've been stolen from. We've run over people with cars and been hit by cars, and then we worry about our health when we get sober. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was watching us the whole time, and they haven't stopped. They're still watching. Um, gee, I don't know where to begin. I, I, I know that I'm grateful that I know what my problem is today. I, I know that. I, uh, all, uh, all the people in my family, except for my father, are sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. My mother's coming up sober on 20 years. Uh, my brother's coming up sober on six and a half in the Ohio State Penitentiary. Uh, everybody's got to find it their way, you know. Uh, and my dad's 66, and he's still an active alcoholic, and A has taught me to love him anyway. It just drives him crazy. It just, you know, you go up and get a big hug on him and a kiss, and he just, oh, he just, he can't take it, but I love doing it. And um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my family for one reason. They don't have a damn thing to do with my drinking. I hear a lot of people in A talk about how they're affected by their parents and all that, and, uh, I don't know about you, but I never threw up on myself because of my mother's drinking. And I never wet my pants on a street corner because of my father's drinking, but I did those things because of my drinking. I, uh, we grew up in a really nice neighborhood. It was a little cul-de-sac. They call them cul-de-sacs today. When we were kids, it was a dead-end street. Uh, a little play on words, I don't know. And uh, nice place to grow up. Good place, man. It was beautiful. It really was. A little two-bedroom house. And uh, we all had alcoholism. Nobody knew it. Nobody knew what the problem was, and uh, like most alcoholic homes, I like to call it the war zone. Everybody gets together at the supper table, lies to one another, and goes out to destroy the neighborhood. You get together at supper time, so how, how you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. You know, you just ripped off something out of your neighbor's garage to get a drink. Stealing some beer out of somebody's garage, and everything's going fine. And uh, as time went by, we all started blaming one another because we didn't know what was wrong with us. We really didn't. We, we didn't know it was alcoholism. I had, I had a grandmother two blocks up the street from my mother. And we knew she was there because we visited her twice a year, you know. And uh, her husband, which was my father's father, my grandpa, was a wet brain. And I found out years ago even wet brains have willpower because he had gotten to the point where somebody had to wipe him and bathe him and clothe him and feed him, the whole deal. And they didn't know it was alcoholism. They would have liked to thought Grandpa had problems because he worked too hard for too many years. Grandpa owned a bar. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and we would go down on one of our semi-annual visits, and uh, Grandpa would be strapped to the toilet for hours at a time. They would try to get him to go there, and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> They'd take the strap off. He'd stand up, go out on the floor, and say, <laughs> <laughs> or he'd, we, he would wait till we were all sitting in the kitchen. He'd look through into the hallway to see if we were all watching. He'd pull a drawer open and go right in it. And, you know, it was such an embarrassment to my grandmother because that was her husband. And it was an embarrassment to my father because that was his father. And it, alcoholism was an embarrassment to these people, and we didn't know what it was. And they would hustle us off into the, the living room. Uh, my mother's mother was an alcoholic. 
She lived in a mental institution for 40 years. She lived in there from the time she was 24, and she died in there when she was 64, and they treated alcoholism like a lot of people do today with pills. Uh, and her husband, which is my grandfather, on my mother's side, drank Echo Springs whiskey for 42 years and was not an alcoholic. And I didn't know that until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was sober a couple years in AA, and Grandpa had stopped drinking, and I, it just amazed me. And I asked him, Grandpa, what do you do now that you don't drink? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I go to AA. What do you do? He said, well, I like to see my children and my grandchildren. I like going out and plowing in the garden and seeing my family. He said, I pretty much enjoy myself. And I thought to myself, you're weird. You know what I mean? I said, well, why did you stop? And he said, the doctors told me I had poor circulations in my, in my legs. I thought, what a wimp. <laughs> you know, you got to get me a wheelchair. I'm not done yet. And I, I started to read this book as I got sober in AA, and I found out that heavy drinking doesn't make people an alcoholic. The disease of alcoholism makes people an alcoholic. That there were heavy drinkers like my grandfather, and because of falling in love, ill health, advice of a doctor... They have some type of control over their drinking. They can stop or moderate, and they might even have problems. They might even be addicted to it and need medical attention. They might even die a few years before their time. But he was not an alcoholic. He was a happy man. Never touched another drop. Never. I just, it just always amazed me. And uh, so there's a lot of alcoholism in my family, but I'm not here tonight because there's a lot of alcoholism in my family. I'm here because there's a lot of alcoholism in me. You know, there's a grave misconception about people like me that get up behind podiums like this at AA meetings like we're having right now, like we're somebody. And I'm here to tell you, I need you. You don't need me. I found that out tonight. Y'all ate without me. <laughs> it's pretty simple. That if I wasn't here, there'd be another drunk here. There, there are a dime a dozen. AA does not need me. I need AA. Uh, are there people here with 90 days or less of sobriety in the room? Huh? Well, good, good. <clears throat> good. I'd like to share my story with you. These old farts can listen if they want to. But you're the one I need to really stay sober. You're the ones who have helped me more than I'll ever help you tonight. You're the ones that have saved my butt. And if I've got a responsibility to myself, and that is to carry the message that was carried to me, and uh, I can say this, 90 days or not, if you've got a sponsor and you've walked through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the best you know how to this point, I'm your equal. Because there is no levels of sobriety in the sobriety. I need the same program, I need the same big book, I need the same fellowship and the same 12 steps. And if there's any advanced sobriety, it's doing that over and over. Let's get back to basics. Let's read the book, go to meetings, talk to my sponsor, go to my home group, get involved in that institution meeting. I hope I leave you with a feeling that I am your equal, that I am not somebody. I'm just a drunk and a member of AA. Um, I started uh, my whole life based on self-centered fear, just like every other alcoholic I've ever heard in my whole life. Long before I took the drink, I uh, hang around, hung around with people I didn't like, went places I didn't want to go, and did things I didn't believe in. <laughs> then I started drinking. And I was running around with people I didn't like, going places I didn't want to go, and doing things I really didn't believe in. And I came to AA, and I was running around people didn't like, going places they didn't want to go, and doing things they didn't believe in. And my life got better. <laughs> so don't you worry if you're new in them first 90 days. You just do what comes natural. You'll be all right. It was the only place I've ever been in my whole life that has said, Joe, be yourself. 
You don't have to be anybody. You don't have to impress anybody. You just be you. And so I was doing what came normal to me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I like to talk about drugs a little bit because it was one of the ways I tried to prove I was really not going to be an alcoholic. You know, we've got a chapter in a big book called More About Alcoholism. It says people like me will do anything to prove they're not an alcoholic. Through every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. That was me. That was me. I knew my mother and father had problems with drinking. I didn't like what I saw in them, and I thought, I'll never be like you, ever. And if you've got children that have told you that, too late. They probably already are. Because non-alcoholics have nothing to prove. It's only the alcoholic that has something to prove. I was at the prison meeting I go to last Monday, and I've never met a social drinker in there trying to prove he was really an alcoholic. It's always the alcoholic saying, well, yeah, well, the woman set me up, man. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. It was the people I was hanging around. It was anything but them. Anything but my drinking. Anything. So I started to smoke marijuana when I was 13 years old. I loved it. Uh, it finally took me away from me a little bit, and I smoked it almost every day up until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, almost, on my quest to try to prove I was not going to be an alcoholic. It was a convenient thing. It was the 60s. It was the 70s. I mean, if you had a cause and a bag of dope, you were in style. I mean, it was just a thing to do. And I imagine if softball was the fad at that time, I'd have been a softball freak. But uh, I had done every drug you can think of except morphine because I just never got my hands on it in my quest to try to prove I was never really going to be an alcoholic. I was 14 years old, and this fellow turned me on to some hallucinogenic drugs, LSD. And he said, try this. It'll give you a better understanding of yourself and the world you live in. <laughs> and I said, woo, that sounds awful good. And I tried it, and about 400 LSD trips later, I didn't understand myself or the world I lived in any better than I did the first trip. Uh, it left my vision a little blurred, but that's about it. But I know this. <clears throat> I'm a controversial individual. And believe it or not, when I came to A, I was afraid to say what was on my mind. I was afraid to be Joe. I was afraid to talk to people. I was really afraid. My sponsor told me when I came to A, he says, Joe, you say what's on your mind. You be yourself. You be who you are. And it was the hardest thing in the world for me to do, just to be me, because I didn't like me. And like I said, I'm a controversial individual. I'm the kind of guy you either like or you don't. I'm not a middle-of-the-road kind of fella. I'm just not. I never have been. And my own personal opinion, there's a difference between the alcoholic and the drug addict. And I know this from my own experience. You know, if I come up to you and, I, and I, I, I tell you, I like chocolate pie, that's been my experience. And you come up to me after the meeting and you say, I don't agree with that. What the hell do you think I'm supposed to say to you? And don't change the fact that it's my experience that I still like chocolate pie. My experience is not up for debate. It's my experience. And my experience tells me there's a difference between addiction and alcoholism. They're two different breeds of cats through my experience, not through someone else, but through mine. This fellow that turned me on to this LSD, when we ran out, I'd say, Richard, let's go up the street and get a couple quarts of beer. Wait for the guy to bring in some more dope. He said, nah, he said, that stuff don't do anything for me. It makes me kind of sick to my stomach, makes me a little sleepy. He said, I don't like it. And I thought to myself at that time, you're weird. I'm going to go up and get me a couple quarts of Miller, and I'm going to get some kind of buzz on. I'm not going to waste my day waiting around with a poor mouth look on my face like he did. And if you just stopped me in that pony keg when I was 14 years old and said, Joe, what, what, uh, what are you buying the Miller for? I'd have given you the excuse, like every alcoholic needs to drink. And my excuse at that time would be, can't find any drugs. Like lost my job. Car won't run. Can't find any drugs. 
Alcohol was the solution for everything to me. I am an alcoholic. It was my solution for everything, even running out of drugs. And the tip-off is, is what does a person do who does drugs when they run out of drugs? If they drink, chances are they're trying to prove they're really not an alcoholic like me. And that's been my experience. I hear people say a drug is a drug is a drug. That might be true if your problem is addiction, but my problem is not addiction. My problem is alcoholism. If my problem was addiction, I'd be home watching HBO unaddicted. I am not an addict. I am an alcoholic. And I can tell you the difference through my own experience. My idea of a good time on LSD was not a crowded shopping center at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> my God, cars going by, dogs barking, doors opening, horns going, Jesus, get me out of here. My idea of a good time on LSD was somebody's basement at 3 o'clock in the morning. One other person. Any more than that, the conversation got too confusing. <clears throat> but when I drank alcohol, I didn't care what time of day it was. By God, it could be a crowded shopping center at 5 or somebody's basement at 3 in the morning. It was, let's go, man. Let's get as many people as we can get and let's party, man. And I guess what I'm trying to say is through my own experience, drugs put me out of it and booze put me right smack dab in the middle of life. And that's where I wanted to be. You see, my drug of choice was all those other drugs that I did. The one I had no choice over was alcohol. I'm an alcoholic. I was one of the arrogant ones that said my drug of choice was alcohol. That isn't what the first step of A implies to me. That first step implies I don't have a choice. I'm powerless. It's like the sun rising. It's not my choice. I'm powerless over the sun rising. But I was the one that said my drug of choice was this, as if though I had some kind of control over my destiny. Um, I, uh, I get a big kick out of people coming into AA today. You know, when I came to AA, I was so sick, I called myself a drug addict. Now, you're going to have to stop and realize I had spent 10 years of my life before I came to AA trying to prove I was never going to be an alcoholic like my mom and dad. You know what I mean? And drug addicts sound kind of cool. You know, some kind of perverse dignity to being a drug addict. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to be an alcoholic. God, it tastes bad the first time you call yourself that in a meeting. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. Oh. And then we've got people in A now. They're coming into A. They're chemically dependent. What is that? What is it? What is it? Clue me in. You've got to realize something. I'm, a, I, I, I'm not right up here. You've got to keep it simple for me. And you've got to keep giving me the truth. So one day, when the mind opens up and the truth is there, I can get it. Because I'm not, I'm not right. I'm a brick short of a full load. And age taught me to accept that and enjoy it anyway, but I didn't know that for a long time. I'm the kind of guy that can go by the First Baptist Church of Eureka Springs and I wonder, wonder where the last one's at. I'm the kind of guy I walk through a supermarket and I'll look down into the freezer and there's a container of sour cream. It's got the expiration date on it. What does it do when it expires? Does it, does it get sour, sour, or what does it do? Uh, I get lost up in stuff you can't apply to everyday living like the lady who talked last night. Yeah, Peggy. I, I heard somebody say nothing sticks to Teflon. I think, well, how do they get it to stick to the pot? I'm not dumb. I can see. Really, I can see. Uh, hmm. Where do people in hell tell each other to go when they get mad at one another? I don't know. I really don't know. 
uh, handicapped parking spaces in front of liquor stores. Like it is a... <laughs> so I guess I've established that my thinking is mushy, okay? And I hear people come into A today and they say they're chemically dependent and that doesn't tell me anything. If you live with your parents and they're supporting you and they work for Dow Chemical, you're chemically dependent. Okay? You know, calling somebody like me chemically dependent that's about a brick short of a full load is like a fireman calling me at work saying, Mr. Annis Hansel, we had to hose your house down today. It overheated. Well, can you be a little bit more specific? <laughs> Was it the house on this side that overheated my house? Was it my garage? Well, to be honest with you, Mr. Annis Hansel, your house burned down today. <laughs> well, now I've got something to go on, okay. And it's funny, I don't know why people want to call it something other than what it is. You know, I heard George Carlin one time say, you know, when guys came home from World War II that were screwed up, they called them shell-shocked. And then when Korea came by, they called them people who had battle fatigue. And then they came home from Nam and they, had, they said they had post-traumatic stress syndrome, as, as if by changing the words to it, it's going to lessen the severity of the problem. And uh, I believe alcoholism is alcoholism. Here's a good one that blew me away. I never really understood is dysfunctional family. <laughs> Boy, what does that mean? Everybody walk backwards? <laughs> I don't get it. Are they all colorblind? <laughs> Are they clubfoot? Now, if you tell me that family down the street has alcoholism, ah, I know what you're talking about now. Uh, what was the... Oh, codependent. That's a good one. What does that mean? You claim two exemptions on your taxes at the end of the year? What is it? Even though you do live alone? <laughs> it, that, these things don't tell me anything. And, you know, thank God the people who brought me this book of Alcoholics Anonymous were not worried about hurting my feelings. They were not worried about telling me the truth and not making friends. By God, they gave me the meat of the program in this book, and they said, this is what works. Call it what you want, but this is what we do, and this is how it works. Um, now, I make a big joke out of it because I was confused when I came to AA. I had a man in my second AA meeting tell me I didn't belong at AA. Yeah. He said, kid, there's no place, no place for drug addicts like you and Alcoholics Anonymous. There were some winners in AA, some people who were happy and sober and knew I was just a common garden variety drunk trying to be a little bit different so maybe I could drink again. But this fellow said, you don't belong here, kid. You belong down in Lexington, Kentucky at some rehab. And I thought to myself, I'm going to come back just to see the look on your face, you old fart. And I, he really, I'm grateful to him today because he got me to come back to A, because I thought, man, if, if this is the last stop, I don't know where I'm going to go. And uh, come to find out, as I got sober, he could never get more than one year of sobriety together at a time. He had been around A 20 years and smoked pot on a regular basis. So you never know where you're going to get your help. <laughs> <laughs> he helped me. Well, I tell you, I... Uh, I got a little bit older and things got a little bit out of control. I joined the Boy Scouts when I was 12, and you know the overachiever that we are. In a couple of years, I was an Eagle Scout, and uh, I love the Boy Scouts. It got me out of the war zone one night of the week and a weekend out of the month. I really enjoyed it, and uh, gee, I, General Westmoreland, Time Magazine's Man of the Year, presented me with my Eagle Scout Award, and uh, I had God and Country Award in the church, and I was a member of the Order of the Arrow, and all those good things. 
And a few months after that, I was your neighborhood drug dealer. And I found out at a young age, trying to be good and do, doing good things did not make me feel good. It did not solve my problem. You see, I found myself at those high school dances being afraid. You know, I hear people in A say, oh, we've got to grow up. Well, I don't know about that. I, my problem's been self-centered fear. I remember when my butt was glued against the wall at those high school dances. I knew what to say. It wasn't that I didn't know what to say. It was, would you like to dance? And if she said no, I'd say, well, thank you, and go on to the next one. I knew what to say. I couldn't do it. I was afraid. But when I had a couple drinks, hell, I danced with the guys. <laughs> oh. Come on, Chuck, don't worry about what they think, you know. So my problem wasn't immaturity. My problem was self-centered fear. And uh, I found out at a young age, being good did not get rid of that self-centered fear for me. And I started getting in a lot of trouble. To make a long story short, I started running away from home when things didn't go my way. At 16 years old, I did it when I was sober. You know, I'd leave because things weren't going my way. I hitchhiked from Cincinnati to Miami, Florida with nine cents in my pocket, end up in a hallelujah house in Naples, banging a tambourine on the corner thinking, Jesus, when are we going to eat? You know what I mean? It's like, what am I doing here? And at that time, my hair was out to here. I had a big bush. And the guy that was with me had hair down to his rear end. And uh, people in Georgia, they, they didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, and this guy arrested us. He looked like one of the uh, sheriff on that Dodge commercial, little heavyset guy with the mirror glasses. He said, what you doing down here, boy? I thought, oh, I'm in trouble now. I'm a, he looked at me, he said, you white or black, boy? <laughs> I said, oh, no. And you know that movie Deliverance where that fellow's playing the banjo? I could hear that banjo going, oh, God, I'm in trouble. And they put us in the back of this cruiser. They were just wanting to scare us, you know. But it was serious at that time. And uh, the other guy I looked at the guy I was with, he said, you a boy or a girl? And, oh, I thought of that movie. I could remember that part in Deliverance where that guy says, he sure got a pretty set of lips on him, don't he? <laughs> I said, oh, God, I got to get out of here. I'm in real trouble. And uh, they scared the hell out of us, what they did, and they did it good, too, and uh, ended up getting out of there. But what I'm trying to say was, is I created problems for myself sober, too, and I really didn't know what my problem was. I uh, ended up going to the Navy, and I thought, well, I'll go into the Navy. I, I finished the 10th grade of high school, and you know something? That's never changed. So I guess I'm a perfect example. You don't have to be educated to be an idiot. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be educated to be happy, sober, member of AA. I can tell you that. I've been happy for quite some time. Went into the Navy thinking, this is going to do it. And I got over in the Philippine Islands when I was 17 years old and I got scared. Yeah. Couldn't hitchhike across the Pacific when things weren't going my way. And I told a fellow, I said, I think I made a mistake. I'm going to get out of this Navy thing. He said, you can't. My mind said, watch me. And I was in there a year and a half and got out of the Navy. Signed up for four. Got out on flat feet. I could run like a duck, but no problem. Just made up a story to get out because I was afraid. I, I was just afraid. Didn't know what my problem was. And uh, my mother was sober and alcoholics anonymous about uh, five years at the time I came home from the Navy. And uh, I remember AA when I was a kid. I used to hate AA. Hated my mother. Yeah, I blamed all my problems on my mother. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah. Because you see, when my mother got sober, she lost her drinking partner. That was my father. And I remember the day my mother told my father, I'm going to AA, Joe. And she, he said, ah, Jubal, you're not an alcoholic. You're just nuts. And I thought, yeah, you're right, Dad. She's nuts. Dad never lied. Mom was always kind of a little flaky. I mean, when she drank, she looked like Grandma out in Longview. And 
and out in the mental hospital. You know, we used to go out there on a regular basis. Other kids go on picnics and campouts and stuff. We went to visit relatives at a place like Cell Block 6 and Building A, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see family, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I'm still doing it today. You know, I still go visit my brother once a month, once every other month at the penitentiary. We have a darn good time. Um, but I used to remember those people coming down the street picking my mother up in those cars that were three different colors, dragging my mother away to those AA meetings. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to pretty up a dirty story. I used to think, you bitch, you think more of those drunks, those strangers, than you do your own family. Look at this house. It's got dishes stacked to the ceiling. Everything's got dust on it. It stinks. And you're going up with those goofballs to that AA thing. And that's how sick I was. I couldn't see beyond the end of my nose. I couldn't see that those dishes could wait for another day, but that's, that sobriety was important to her right now. And I just couldn't see that. So I hated AA, and I hated my mother. I hated anything that had to do with not drinking. I didn't want to hear anything about it. I, uh, got into, I, had, I had jobs, but I couldn't hold them any longer. My alcoholism wouldn't let me, and I have always envied people like my father. I think he missed a half a day's work his whole life. Come in drunk at 4 in the morning, get up at 5 without an alarm and go to work every day and I couldn't get up and go to work on payday I couldn't do it my drinking my drinking wouldn't let me and uh, it got to the point where I was I was 21 years old I'm coming home I'm putting my fist through walls and tearing doors off the of hinges and calling my mother those unsociable names and uh, crying thinking you know what the hell's wrong with me I'm 21 years old other people I know of my age have jobs and homes and cars and families and I, and I have nothing what's wrong with me and my solution to what was wrong with me is to go back out and get something else to drink. That was my break. That was my solution to the problem. And uh, I think it was really tearing my mother apart. You know, I'll never be a mother. But what, from what I've heard, it's got to be an awful hard thing for a mother to kick their own kids out of the house. And I, I tell you what, I thank God my mother did that. When my mother stopped helping me, she actually started helping me. Yeah, she says, you got to get out. I says, well, can you give me a week? She said, tomorrow. I said, but, she said, tomorrow. So I put all my belongings in three green hefty trash can liners, put them in the back of my yellow Chevy pickup truck, and I headed for No Hope, Kentucky, Covington, Kentucky, in Skid Row on 15th and Scott. And I had a little sleeping room down there. And I like to talk about the sleeping room because I know if I start drinking today, it won't be that nice. It'll be a hell of a lot worse. This sleeping room was just one room. Didn't have all those tiles, you know, that luxury stuff that have squares that go together. <laughs> it had that linoleum, one big piece, and all the edges were curled up all the way around the room. The floor was green, the wall was green, the ceiling was green. Had holes in the walls, cobwebs in the holes. I had plastic curtains with grease on the blinds. I had a bare mattress on the floor for a bed and a cardboard box turned upside down for an end table. And I used to come in there drunk at night, and I'd, I'd, I'd open the door to my room, and I had a four-pane window, and one of the panes were broken out, and that window would just tatter that plastic back and forth. And I'd open that, room, open that room and turn that light on, and I swear to God, this is no exaggeration, there'd be roaches one square foot apart, and i hit that light, and those roaches would take off, just boom. It was like they were talking to one another. Hey, look out, he puked on me last night. I can never figure out, what are they doing in here? I have no food. You know, I have no refrigerator. I don't have a bathroom, so you know what I use my sink for. I, I, what, what are they doing in here? And I would lay down on that bed, that mattress, and I'd stare up at the bulb that hung by a wire from the ceiling. And the only thing I could think of is that wind was tattering that plastic curtain back and forth. Was, Gee, isn't it nice not to have anybody complain about my drinking? Isn't this great? 
And that wasn't the part that bothered me. You see, alcoholism makes somebody like me accept less and less and less. And I accepted that. If that's what I got to do to drink, I'll do it. No big deal. I'll do it. But the thing that hurt me was my hopelessness. That's what got me. That's what got me. I was 22 years old. I remember I went to a bar where I, in the neighborhood I grew up in, and that night it was 25 below. And the wind chill factor that night was 70 below. And I'd gotten to this bar, and the bar closed, and nobody wanted to be around Joe no more. Joe was one of those people who were more or less insanely drunk when he drank. And I looked around, and nobody was there, and the wind's whipping, and it's 70 below, and I have no hat, no gloves. I had a navy pea coat on, bib cover, all socks, shoes, and a regular shirt. And man, that was cold. I hit a hitchhike from way out in the suburbs down to downtown Cincinnati to Dixie Terminal Building. And man, it was cold. I'm, I, was, I was so glad I was drunk, really. I mean, it was so cold, dogs were frozen to fire hydrants. There wasn't nothing moving. Police cars were frozen to the curb. And as I walked over the bridge over the Ohio River to my room, the river was frozen. And if you'd have stopped me in the middle of that bridge at 4 a.m. and said, Hey, Joe, you think you might have a problem with your drinking? I could just see myself saying something like, well, no, not really. I've got a transportation problem. I've got 30 cents, but the buses aren't running. And believed it. It couldn't be the booze. My God, it was the thing that got my butt off the wall at the high school dance, wasn't it? It was the thing that allowed me to get the courage up to go join the Navy. It was, it was my solution. And I didn't know that long time before that it had stopped being my solution. Alcohol was always the solution for me. It's the best thing that ever happened to me next to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember it started warming up a little bit, and it was springtime, and uh, it was about 9 in the morning, and I had just finished off a bottle of wine. I was drinking wine. I was a wino, is what I was. And uh, I used to like to drink that Mad Dog, and that Thunderbird, and those Four Roses, and that stuff that was cheap that got you there now, man. I love that stuff. I remember standing right next to a, uh, a little grade school with my face pressed up against the chain-link fence watching these 8- and 9-year-olds play at recess. And I'm drunk, and I'm up against this fence, and I just wet my pants. And I'm looking at those little kids, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'd give anything to be eight or nine again. I'd give anything to go home to my mother and say, Mom, I just didn't mean to turn out to be like this. Give me another chance. Let's, let's, let's do it over this time. And the sad part about it was I wasn't going to be eight or nine. I wasn't going home to Mom no more. I was going to go right back up the street, give me another bottle of MD. That's where I was going. And that was life for me on a daily existence. You see, I wasn't capable of working. Alcoholism had robbed me of the ability to support myself. And uh, I would sit there in a little stone wall out there on Skid Row with the rest of the winos, watching the cars go up and down the street on Friday night. There'd be couples. Everybody looked like they knew where they were going in life but me. Yeah. My hair's out to here. I have these little bib coveralls on, a little dried puke on them. I hadn't bathed in days. I smell like a goat. I look like a wild man. I'm thinking, wonder why I can't get a date. <laughs> Jesus. And then we come to A and say we have relationship problems. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time when I was 22 years old. And of all people to introduce me to A was the person I hated second to myself, my own mother. Can you believe that? That was the person I turned to. I remember calling her at the Oak Street Center, the A clubhouse in Cincinnati. I says, Mom, this is Joe. How do you stay sober? And she started crying. I felt like I was one of, one of those science fiction movies. I could hear her crying, talking to somebody in the background. I said, oh, my God, he's one of us. I said, Mom, let me run this by you one more time. How do you stay sober? And she put me on the phone with a fellow who asked me to come down there that day. 
He said, do you have a problem with your drinking, Joe? I said, yeah, I think I do. And I says, I, I says, I'll tell you what, I'll come down tomorrow. I feel like I've been on a merry-go-round going 90 miles an hour for the last 10 years of my life, and I just want to go home, get cleaned up, and sleep. And I'll be down tomorrow, and I went down the next day. My first day of meeting was April the 10th, 1977. And I was sure when I went to that meeting that somebody was going to say, why don't you get a haircut? Why don't you get some clothes? Why don't you take a bath? You stink. Why don't you get a job? Get a life, man. Because my hair's out to here, I haven't eaten in days, I haven't bathed in days, my hygiene was shot. I had bib coveralls on, no shirt, no underwear, no socks, and I had a pair of old worn-out earth shoes, Ted. <laughs> because, see, that's what I told myself in the mirror that day before I went to AA, and I was sure those people were going to tell me that, and I hope I never forget my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. At that time, there weren't that many younger members of AA and, and Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati, and I walked in, I looked around, and half the people were old enough to be my parents, and the other half were old enough to be my grandparents. I thought, you got to be kidding me. What are we going to do Friday? Go play a little bridge? Huh? <laughs> but what always amazed me when I stop and think about it is these people come up to me, and one guy says, come on in, Joe, and have a cup of coffee. It's good to see you. Let's sit down and talk about it. Didn't trust him. And they didn't call me an alcoholic. That amazed me. They said, Joe, we don't know if you're an alcoholic or not like us. But if you are, you're in the grips of a pro progressive, fatal, and incurable illness. Never gets any better without spiritual relief. And on the outside, I'm shaking my head like this. And on the inside, I'm thinking, that might be true for you, you old fart. You drank 30 years. And the guy says, you know, if you've got the problem like we've got it, we can share with you how we found the way up and out of our problem. They didn't say, we'll tell you what to do, because I was too arrogant, too conceited to take that type of direction. They would have seen the back of my head, and that would have been it. And I heard a guy get up like I'm doing now, and he talked about getting a sponsor, getting a sponsor. And that's all I remember him saying. And it was my first day meeting. What do I know about AA? Come on. After the meeting's over, I turned to the guy next to me. I said, would you be my sponsor? I figured everybody had one. I want one. And he looked at me a little goofy, and he said, yeah, and you know he's still my sponsor today. <laughs> and I hear people go through this maze of thinking about, well, how do I pick a sponsor? And the only thing I can say is it helps if it's another member of AA. Because <laughs> ask somebody. <laughs> and uh, I proceeded to do everything backwards of what these people suggested, because uh, I didn't think I was quite like them. You see, I was, I was an alcoholic and an addict, you see. I was kind of like you, but I wasn't quite like you, so that meant I didn't have to do everything exactly like you. Uh, he introduced me to this book. He said, Joe, I found by following the directions in this book and just trying that it solved my living problems. Yeah. And I like the part in the fifth chapter that was read today, and I hope I don't forget it. Many of us exclaim, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. These principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. But do you think I read this? <laughs> no way, Jose. I looked at it and I thought, well, this book don't have one picture in it. <laughs> I'm not reading a book that doesn't have pictures in it to give you a break once in a while. I thought, well, hell, you know, I think they'd have a picture of co-founder before and after. This is Bill drunk. This is Bill sober, you know. Nothing. Nothing. No pictures of him drunk in the bathtub or anything like that. I thought, well, 
And then I heard another guy say, all you have to do is just don't drink a day at a time, go to meetings, everything will be okay. I thought, I'll do that. That's dangerous information to give to an alcoholic like me. I, my own personal opinion, I believe it's a terrible thing to tell an alcoholic, just don't drink without giving him a solution. You see, because my problem was, like the first step implies, I had problems drinking and I had problems not drinking. So to tell me just not to drink is not solving the problem, is it? No, it's not. And I went to 89 meetings by meeting every day, didn't drink a day at a time. And I thought I'd smoke me a little marijuana, you know, and I don't know what made me think I could do that and drink Diet Pepsi, but I did it and I was drunk again. And I came back and I went to meetings every day, not drinking a day at a time, and got drunk after four months. And I came back to AA, not drinking a day at a time, and I got drunk after five months. I always got drunk from leaving a meeting. Can you believe And what I was doing is I was coming to AA getting sicker. It was like going to the outpatient clinic at the hospital and never going in to get the treatment. Just sitting in the waiting rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, and I believe in getting people active in AA. My book says we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. It don't say do a step a year. I don't know. Maybe mine's a misprint. What does yours say? I don't know. I can only go by what mine says. You know, I, I don't know what it is about alcoholism. You know, somebody's got diabetes or cancer. Hey, hey, come on, we've got a solution. Let's go. Let's, let's take care of this quick. Well, alcoholic says, oh, don't rush into it. <laughs> well, that's crazy, isn't it? But you hear it all the time, don't you? Sure. I heard somebody the other day said this step a year. I thought, wow, I don't know how you did that. But I bounced in and out of AA for the next year. And I experienced the things that I heard people in AA talk about, that loneliness. You know what I mean, that kind of loneliness where you're downtown in the middle of a crowd at noontime and you're the loneliest guy in the world. Being in bed with him or her at night and feeling like you're the loneliest person in the world. You see, by this time, I knew that I was a hopeless alcoholic. I knew that I was the type of person who was never going to get better, that life got better for other people. And I knew it so much, I didn't even have to think it. It was a part of my makeup. I knew it like I know my skin's white, my eyes are brown, and my hair is brown and nappy. I don't wake up thinking, yeah, your hair's still nappy. It's me. I don't think of it. I know it. That was my hopelessness. I knew I was going to be one of those people, because hell, it was no different than anything else I ever tried my whole life. The newness of it wear off, the bottom fall out, and back on skid row. It's like anything I ever tried. I'd go out there drinking those bars after I came to AA, and I'd sit there, and I'd have a couple drinks, and I'd look in that mirror, and I'd get that Estee Lauder look. You know what I'm saying? I'd get all handsome and debonair, and have two more drinks, and puke on the bar, and they'd kick me out. And i think, if I don't belong here, and I don't belong in AA, where do I belong? That loneliness. God, I think that loneliness, like Bo was talking about, that loneliness. God, I, you know, I never had to feel that loneliness ever since I became an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope I never have to experience that again. I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous on October the 5th, 1978, and I didn't know that that was going to be my sobriety date. I had no idea. If we get another cold winter, I was going to go to an AA meeting, one of those eating meetings, act like an active AA member, get a free meal. You know what I mean? Uh, I wasn't going to stick around too long. Uh, I don't remember what the speaker said, like, I'm up here tonight, I don't remember what was said at that meeting, but I remember what was said after the meeting. Yeah, I remember sitting in my sponsor's car, and he said, Joe, I want to thank you, you helped save my life this past year. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, come on, I don't want to hear this crap. You know, I haven't eaten in days, I, I haven't had a job in a long time, I smell funny, I look funny. My emotions are going 100 miles an hour, and you have the audacity to tell me that I saved your life. You must think I'm dumb. And I said to Mike, oh, really, Mike, how's that? 
And he said, yeah, he said, you know, I watched my mother die of cancer this past year, and because of the cancer and the chemotherapy, little by little, her hair fell out, she shriveled up and died. And he said, man, I could taste that whiskey going down. My God, many times I thought to myself, I'm going to help this guy get on his feet, and I'm going to go out and drink. And he said, but you went out and you drank for me. And he said, I saw what it was doing to you, and he said, I figured I just didn't need that right now in my life. Thanks, you teach me a lot. <laughs> and I have a fit of humility and love and understanding for my fellow man. I said, you son of a bitch, I'm not teaching you anymore. I didn't come back to A to stay sober. I come back to A because that guy was using me. I figured if I didn't drink, he couldn't use me. I didn't like being hustled. Didn't mind hustling you, but I didn't like being hustled. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I was afraid of the man. The man was doing something obviously I had no idea how to do. He's living sober. I hated him. I, I just, I just thought at him all the time. And I thought to myself at that moment, you think you're so smart. Now, I didn't tell him this. I was afraid of him, but I thought a lot at him. I mentally assassinated him. I think. I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that A doesn't work for people like me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this dumb book that has not one picture in it. I'm going to try to follow the directions in it to the best of my ability. I'm going to go to the meetings you go to. I'm going to tell the same dumb jokes you tell. And I'm going to do the things that you do in AA. And when it doesn't work out, like everything I've ever tried my whole life, even AA, I can say, told you so, you were wrong. And I've been sober ever since then, October 5th, 1978. You see, I guess a combination of my own desperation and the loving God and a sponsor that was willing to tell me the truth made me willing to take some action. You know, action is something I have to do. It's not brought to me. It's not like this fellow that lived up here in the hills outside of Fayetteville. He told his son, son, why don't you go out and see if it's raining? He said, well, hell, Dad, can't we just call the dog in and see if he's wet? <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. There's, i got to do some stuff. You know what I mean? Kind of like drinking. It never came to me. went down my throat. I had to take some action. And I started following this stuff, not because I believed it worked, not because I understood it, out of a desperation to try to prove I was right about something because I had the feeling I was wrong about everything. And my sponsor would tell me things like, Joe, think of three people that you admire the most in AA, people you respect. And I'd say, yeah, all right. He said, now don't tell me what their names are. All I want to know is, are you one of them? And I'd think, is this a trick question? <laughs> I thought, well, what does he mean by that? What's that got to do with anything? And uh, as time went by, I can honestly say without any pomp, that, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the people I respect in A because it's because of what you did for me, not because of what I've done. I made that decision like our book talks about. I read it, and I wrote that inventory. You know, I was sober about 30 days, and I was at that point again where it was either drink or do something. And I went to my sponsor. I said, I don't like you. I don't like me. I hate you. I hate me. What do I do? <laughs> He says, well, when I felt like that, I got out a pen and paper and I wrote down the things that I resented. I wrote down the things that I was afraid of. And I wrote down the things in my sex life that had bothered me that I had hidden my whole life. And that's what I did. And our book says, you know, that third step's great, but unless it's followed by some type of action to get rid of the things that are blocking me, that decision has little or no permanent effect on somebody like me. So I had to take some action. And I wrote that stuff down. By God, I remember like it was yesterday. It took me 45 minutes to write all that stuff down. And I tell guys that I sponsor, if it takes any more than an hour, you're just making up a story. You know what I mean? You know, it's kind of like, he, he, I have to clean it up. 
he embarrassed me in front of my friends at the meeting. I hate him. That's okay. That's your resentment. Now, what do you think is the cause of it? Okay. It's not what did you eat for breakfast? What were you wearing that day? What did you go to? It's what bothers you, Joe. Okay, I'll do that. I remember my biggest resentment was me. I resented the fact that I was an alcoholic, that I couldn't take a drink once in a while. I resented the fact that there were people who were not as smart as I was and had better jobs than I did. You know, that's a lot of people to hate when you're out of work. It really is. I resented men who looked better than I did. I resented men who had a better way with the women than I did. I resented people who had nice things. I resented my own powerlessness to do anything about my life. And it's funny, in the fear column, I was afraid I would get drunk again, huh? Yeah. I was afraid that I was afraid of success and I was afraid of failure. I felt like I was just drifting aimlessly to nowhere without any sense of purpose or direction in my life. And the sex part, that was a joke. It had been so long since I'd had sex with another human being, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I was thinking about starting my own group called Sex Without Partners, huh? <laughs> yeah, you guys laughing, you know what I'm talking about. And you guys that aren't laughing, you're thinking about it. And I did what the book told me. I went and found that someone to tell my whole story to. Before I read mine to him, he, gave, he read me a little hit to me. Yeah. Kind of took the heat off of me. And I read it to him, and I went home and was quiet for an hour. I thought about how I just made an ass out of myself in front of another human being. Uh, it isn't what the book says, but I went home and I reflected on what I had just done, and I couldn't believe I had just done that. And in that seventh step, I asked God to take all of me, good and bad, and I got scared. I thought, now, if he takes the good and the bad, what's that leave me? So I called my sponsor up. And I said, well, Mike, this says here, if he, I'm supposed to ask him to take all of me, the good and the bad. I said, what's that leave me? He said, it leaves you happy sober. He said, you don't have to if you don't want to. And I thought, oh, no, I've already made up my mind. I'm going to try to prove you don't know what you're talking about. So I did it. And I had the list of people I needed to make amends for. You see, I was, I was stupid enough to read this book to find out that I didn't have to make another list. It was already made when I wrote my inventory. That's what my big book says. It's the easier, softer way for this alcoholic. There were people on that inventory were the ones I needed to make amends to, and that's when I did, and I went to talk to my mother. I said, Mom, gee, how can I ever make up what I've done to you because of the illness I have? I never knew what was wrong with me. She said, Joe, you just keep going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you'll make all the amends you'll ever have to make to me. All I ever wanted to see was see you be was sober and happy. Yeah, and I went to my dad, and I told him how I all stole money from him and stole all this stuff and lied to him. He says, oh, I know. <laughs> You take all the fun out of it. <laughs> I says, how can I pay you back? And this is coming from an active alcoholic. He said, Joe, why don't we just call it even? He said, I'm your dad. And he said, may I hope maybe you learned something from it. And he says, I know I have. He said, I don't feel any different from about you. He said, I love you just the way you are. And I said, yeah, but i got to pay you this money. He says, if you have to pay me, if your sobriety depends on you happen to pay me, that's not much of a program you're going to, is it? And he walked away from me. And I found out it was my willingness to try to make these amends is what counted in my life, to clear my side of the street. As a result of doing this, my life took off. The biggest problem I have had in sobriety is learning how to let life get better. That is my biggest problem. I know how to handle life going to crap. I know how every alcoholic, I believe, has a built-in blueprint in their head. What you going to do when things don't work out? 
I'm going to move here. I'm going to sell this. I'm going to get rid of her. I'm doing it quick. <laughs> Don't have to think about it. It's almost like a reflex. But ask somebody like me who doesn't have this book, Joe, what are you going to do if your life continues to get better? I think, well, gee, it, it just never occurred to me that it would. And I can honestly say this has been the best year of my life. It's gotten better every year, and I don't apologize to nobody for what you've done for me. Look at what you've done for me. I'm a wino. You have done one hell of a job with me. And you're not, you're not done with me yet either. That's what I like about it. I uh, got married when I was sober two years. Never should have did that. But I can tell you this, God put an excellent woman in my life. She's been nothing but supportive of me and AA, and she just joined Al-Anon about four and a half years ago. And I can say this for Al-Anon, you saved my marriage. Thank you. I, whoo, ours was on the rocks when I was sober about eight years, and my wife went to Al-Anon and just put everything back together like it had never been together before. I was sober about two and a half years to learn how to fly a plane. I was flying over that roach-infested sleeping room over Skid Row at 13,000 feet by myself, and I started crying because I was so grateful. I thought, my God, look what had happened. And a little voice just kind of dug in me. It says, you better enjoy it now because you know it's not going to last. It's like everything you've ever done your whole life, the newness of it's going to wear off, the bottom's going to fall out. You'll be right back down there with the roaches again, pal. And I just kind of shook it off. I said, I better land this thing. I'm getting a little nervous. I was sober about three years, and I'm laying on the beach in Hawaii with my wife. Wino, on the beach. You know, I can't believe it. And I'm just enjoying it, and all of a sudden that little nagging thing hit me again. You better enjoy it now. You know it's not going to last. I just, it, I, it wouldn't hit me all the time, but from time to time it was kind of like cheating me out of having fun, huh? I classified fear with stealing in the big book, and that's what it was. I was afraid. I said, over five years, my wife had a baby. It's fashionable today for people to say, we had a baby. Believe me, after what I saw, she had the baby. I, God, I, I couldn't believe it. I went along for the ride, you know what I mean? I couldn't believe it. And we were so happy with what A had done for my sponsor. A guy used to wet his pants on a street corner at 3 a.m. We named our boy after my sponsor, Mike. Beautiful little boy, blonde hair, blue eye, huh? Sure. A year later, on the same day, had another one. She had another one. I don't know how the hell she did it, but she's got good timing or bad memory, one of the two. <laughs> they were born a year apart and had the same birthday, and this little boy was born special. And we were, we, were, we were so happy with what A had done for my sponsor's sponsor. He was a graduate, two-time graduate of the psych ward in our community, and A had done a hell of a job with him. We were impressed with what A had done for him. We named our second boy after him. And Bobby was special. Now I'm sober about six years, I'm active in AA, I'm working with alcoholics, I'm doing the best I know how. Okay? This little boy's born, and this is how I know that there's a God for this alcoholic. I am, I am without, without a shadow of a doubt, I am convinced that there is a God for me. I don't care what you believe, this is what I believe through my own experience. This little boy was born, his little feet were turned in like this and completely upside down like that. I'm about as far away from my wife as I am from Mike, and the doctor said, oh, he's just fine. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not dumb, Doc. I can see the kid looks like Flipper, and you're telling me he's fine. Now, I know, I can, I see, I am not dumb. My mind flashed back to when I was a little boy on that whole baseball team. We lost 15 out of 16 games. That team was terrible. And I'd get so mad, I'd bang that bat down and throw that glove down in the dust, and I could hear the coach saying, Joe, Joe. It's not who wins or loses, it's how you play the game. And even at that age, I thought, oh, yeah, why do they keep score then? You know what I mean? I, I just felt like, well, you must think I'm dumb. You know what I mean? I, we, we lost. <laughs> and uh, that's why I felt when this doctor told me this. But of all the years and months 
and weeks and days that went by in my life on that day that day within four hours I was in a courtroom downtown listening to a pre-sentencing hearing of an alcoholic and I'm sitting there and they bring the alcoholic in he's got handcuffs to a waist belt shackles on his ankles he's facing five life sentences in the Ohio State Penitentiary then day before I didn't think he needed it thought he was a drug addict huh sure my mom's sitting here crying my dad's sitting next to her and he's rocking like a tiger in a cage he didn't know what the hell to do and I looked up there and that alcoholic was my brother and I know what the big book says about working with other alcoholics practical experience shows that nothing nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics this works for other activities I knew what it said I'd been doing it for years but there's a big difference between knowing what it says and living it you know I could walk around a prescription of penicillin says take one every four hours and I could walk around like an idiot saying take one every four hours and somebody said have you taken it no but I know what it says you know it doesn't do any good unless I take and follow the directions I looked at that alcoholic and I looked at me and I realized the only difference between that alcoholic and me is that I had Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, what a difference it made. And I can tell you this, I've never really been the same since. I uh, walked out of the courtroom and I walked because the walk light said walk and I damn well felt like it. That's right. And he's walking where they want him to walk for three 10 to 25 year sentences. I went to a car, it had a little rust on it. That rust really bothered me going into that courtroom because you know how we are. And, 150 to get it fixed, and we gotta get it painted. Jesus, I, I, you know, I gotta take care of this stuff. I walked out of that courtroom, baby, that was my rust. That's right. And he's not gonna have any rust for a long time. And sobriety makes hard on people like us. What am I gonna do today? Cash one paycheck or two? And I, oh yeah, I got pictures of our children to get developed. Children he had taken away from him permanently, never see again. And I suddenly realized that there was a God who enabled me to match calamity with serenity. And I had a profound spiritual experience. I felt cool air just tingling from my scalp down through my body and out through my toes. I felt the presence of my Creator. And I don't care if you believe that. That's my experience. And I went up to that hospital and I told my wife, don't worry about that little boy. He's going to be fine. It doesn't matter if he walks or not. She just looked at me and says, well, how do you know? You know, a concerned mother here. And I said, because that boy's daddy has Alcoholics Anonymous and he hasn't done something so terrible in a drunken stupor that he has to be removed from society. You see, it doesn't matter if that little boy walks. I can hold him and love him. If I've got to push him in a chair, I'll do it. And my brother's got that ripped out of his life because he didn't think he was an alcoholic. He thought he was something else. The crime he committed, he committed while he was drinking whiskey. I want to say this. I'm going to end my talk here in about five minutes. And that's almost right on an hour. You know, I, I don't know how to put into words what you have done for me because you see what I am how I live is all what you have done for me my story's not what I've done for anybody Jesus it's what you have done for me my job I've got today as a result of somebody walking up to me in AA and said hey buddy you need a job and because of that job it helped me to eventually get the job I have today and I, I don't know of a step in the 12 steps that says we promptly admitted when we were right. It's always my growth is going to happen when I'm wrong. And I'll tell you this, I was talking with Peggy, and I says, you know, if you can't come here and show your ass, where are you going to go? Huh? And I'm going to show mine just for a second. And I hope that guy with less than 90 days, I hope I 
let you feel that I'm your equal, that I'm not somebody. Hell, I'm just a drunk man. I was sober about seven years. I had a lot of things on my mind, you know what I mean? A lot of things. I had the boy, and he had cast on his feet in operations, and uh, my brother's in the penitentiary. I'm worried about my marriage falling apart. They told me at work I was going to get laid off. I'm worried about losing the house, and I'm going to meetings seven days a week, and it's the only thing that saved me, and I'm running on nervous energies. And I didn't know there was something wrong with me. I really didn't. But I remember my wife going out, and I'd watch the boys. I had a, we had a uh, two-year-old and a one-year-old at that time, and when Bobby would start crying, I'd pick him up. And I would squeeze him. And the more he cried, the louder he cried, the more I would shake. And I would scream, please shut up! And I scared myself, and I let the boy go, and I thought, well, Joe, you're losing your mind. What the hell are you doing here? What you, that's a little boy. He's got cast on his feet. He's got pins in his feet. What are you doing? And I was ashamed. I didn't say anything. A week later, it happened again, huh? This time I told my wife, I said, honey, I, there's something wrong with me. I, I don't know what it is, I, but I don't think AA can take care of something like this. I think this is beyond what AA is capable of taking care of. Uh, God damn. I said, if it happens again, I'm going to call a psychologist, and it happened again a week later, the third time. And I called the psychologist, and thank God I got the answering machine. I have nothing against doctors. There's many good doctors. But what this alcoholic needed to learn is the power. I had to relearn how powerful A really was. I didn't need somebody asking me how come I played with myself on the couch when I was five. I mean, what the hell? I, I need a solution now. And that's what A does. It gives me a solution now. And I went to the meeting that night. That's one of the very few things I ever held back from telling my sponsor. I was so ashamed. I knew he was going to say, don't you ever talk to me again. You're rotten. Don't come to this meeting anymore. You've done the unthinkable. See, because I had told myself that in the mirror that day. huh? And I went to the meeting that night, and I did what the 10 steps suggested. On the way to that meeting, I said, God help me. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I need help. And I went and talked to another human being about it. You know, I... I told Mike what I just told you, and you know what he said? Hmm. Aren't you glad you told somebody? Hmm. You might think about working more with other alcoholics. And that's all he said. And that's what I did. And I went home to that little boy that night, and I got on my knees and said, Bobby, I don't know what's wrong with your daddy. I, I really don't. I don't even know if you hear me or you understand me, but I, I'll try. And that's all this AA thing says is we tried. And that's what I did is I tried out of desperation to follow the directions. And I never found it necessary to do that again. And I'm not saying I won't, but that's been almost six years ago. And that was six months after that happened, I heard a guy get up who was worried about losing his job. He was smacking his wife around when she was eight months pregnant. And he said, you know, I did that because I was afraid my security was being threatened. And I thought, oh my God. That's why I did it. I was afraid. My security was being threatened. Now, you'd leave it up to me. I would have analyzed myself into some bizarre problem that I had. That little boy, I got to watch hit a double at T-ball the other day, and I thought, that's my boy. <laughs> that's my boy. He's a loving little kid. If you'd asked me to make a list of the things I expected out of being sober in AA, it would have been a car that ran, I had a little gas, a little money in my pocket, place to stay, maybe a steady honey. You know? And if that's all I ever got out of AA, I'd have screwed myself. If you ever want to see what AA and Al-Anon's done for this alcoholic and his family and you're coming through Cincinnati, look my name up in the book, Joannis Hansel. Come on and see what you've done for us. We've got a house, two yards, front and back. That just tickles me to death, I tell you. <laughs> that's a long walk from a roast-infested sleeping room as a kid on Skid Row. We've got a couple cars in the driveway. 
food in the refrigerator, we have heat in the winter, air conditioning in the summer, we've got clothes in the closets. And you know what's more important than that? We've got a family on the inside that gets along with each other most of the time, huh? That's fascinating. Got two little boys that think their daddy's God, and I'm not telling them any different. <laughs> I'm going to milk it for everything I can get out of it. They're six and seven. I love it. The oldest boy told me yesterday, he said, Daddy, I'm going to miss you. And I said, Son, I'm going to miss you too. Mike was about two years old and it was snowing out. He looked at that and he said, Where does snow come from, Daddy? I said, It comes from God. And I knew he wasn't going to drop that. So the next morning we were praying. I was working the midnight shift and I was on my knees praying. They thought it was funny to pray with Daddy to watch him talk with his eyes shut. And as we were done praying, I says, hey, Mike, where's God at today? He said, ah, he's home. I said, oh, really? Where's that? He said, in my belly. Just where you told me he was. And I guess that's what I say to you, is that's where I found the God of my understanding, was deep down inside. I was covered by a lot of sick, twisted character defects held down by a big chain of fear. But it was the hand of a loving God that lifted that chain. And it was another alcoholic who talked about himself and how he solved his problems that allowed me to see mine. And it was beneath all of that that I found the God of my understanding. You know, I insist on enjoying being happy. I'm telling you, I don't do it every day, but I'm, I got a pretty good batting average going. And I'd hate to die today and meet my maker and have him ask me, Joe, what'd you do with the last day of sobriety I gave you? And I'd say, well, I was smoking too much. I, uh, was worried about my bills. They were driving me nuts, you know. Grass needed cutting. Garage needed painting. You know, just, just my wife got it. I just worried a lot about stuff, you know. And I could hear him kind of laughing, saying, Joe, Joe, if you'd have read that book that didn't have any pictures, you would have found out that uh, if there were any major changes or decisions to be made in your life, son, I'd have made them for you. That your main purpose in life was to stick your hand out the door of Alcoholics Anonymous and offer that new guy or gal the hope that was offered to you. All I ever wanted you to be was happy, joyous, and free. But you blew it, kid. Go to hell. <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> this is it. This is the last of the bull, and I'm going to shut up. A couple of years ago, we took our boys to a local fireman's festival. They had a trailer, and it was a maze of lights and buzzers and stuff like that. Scared the hell out of little kids. I love watching kids get scared. I get a kick out of it. And halfway through... There were these bars, and you could see out into the rest of the carnival. And there was this little girl there, and I had my boys on each hand. We're walking through, and they're gripping my hands like vice grips. And this little girl standing there crying. She's about four years old. And she's trying to get to her mother through the bars. And she can't. And her mother's saying, honey, I can't help you. You're going to have to finish going the rest of the way through. And she's just crying, them big horse turd tears coming down her face, and that snot slinging around. You know, I'm just, oh... And I looked down at that little girl, I said, honey, I know the way out of here. If I, if I go first, will you follow me? And my boys dropped my hands like, I can do it on my own. And she grabbed my hand and we finished going out through there. And I thought to myself, that's just like my life, coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I found myself in the middle of something I really didn't understand, nor did I know the, un know the severity of. I could see you out there. I, I, I wanted to be a part of you so bad. But I, I just couldn't get to you. I couldn't go forward, I couldn't go backward, I was afraid. And I had the tears going down and the snot slinging just like that little girl. And along came a member of AA that I didn't even like. 
who I thought was stupid. He said, hey, Joe, uh, I'm on this path, and I know the way out. And if I go first, since I'm going that way anyway, will you follow? And for some reason I said yes. And I've been following ever since. And you new guys and gals in less than 90 days of sobriety, take a good look around. There's a lot of people here who are on that path. And I guess if we have any questions to ask, is if we go first, will you follow? We love you very much. Thank you.